Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I have a double... I have a double honor and a double pleasure this evening. That is to say, I am to introduce the Howison Lectures and also to introduce the Howison Lecturer. 2002. Um, the Harrison Lectures were established by the University of California in 1919, and they were intended as a memorial to Professor George Holmes Harrison, uh, a distinguished figure uh, in this university and to whom the philosophy department owes a great deal. It was established by his friends, many of whom had been his students. And in their bequest, the donors wrote as follows. Professor Harrison held the reasoned conviction that this world, to its very depths, is kindred to the human spirit, that it is a community of free persons, finite and infinite, sustained by the vision of the perfect. And all his great powers were directed to awaken in others a loyalty to these ideas. And the donors went on to think that those, it would seem, who could most speak to or from a foundation in his memory were those who were able to share with him this high purpose and conviction. So I turn now to the, this year's lecturer, Professor Stanley Cavell, who is no stranger whatsoever to this university. He was um, here as an undergraduate, as a um, music major. He, he, it was here that he first taught for a number of years, and he has often returned here. He has given various important lectures and seminars and talks. He, the Beckman lectures, which he delivered, uh, were a very important step in his own um, literary career and also a very important landmark in contemporary American philosophy. Professor Stanley Cavell has written on a remarkable range of subjects. He's written on metaphor and the nature of drama, on Shakespeare and serialist music. He's written on figures who have a deep affinity, like Wittgenstein and Thoreau, and other figures whose affinities are harder to find, like Sigmund Freud and Jacques Lacan. It, however, simply to specify the, uh, the range of what he has written about, really makes no more than the point of how much of a headache Professor Cabell must be to the more obsessional kind of librarian. What is more important, I think, than the variety or the range of his writings interesting, remarkable, though that is, is also a unity which he has given them. He talks somewhere or other of his, um, of keeping his, maintaining his philosophical bearings in his work. And so he has done so through following up a number of underlying themes of large importance. One such theme, for instance, which appears in many of his writings on diverse subjects is the corrosive phenomenon of philosophical scepticism, and how this undermines, on the one hand, our ability to give value to the world and also the knowledge that we can have on this world. He contrasts at various points in the criticism which he makes of various aspects of art and philosophy skepticism on the one hand and a more generous tendency of the, of the open mind, which is what he calls acknowledgement, the ability to recognize both in ourselves and in others complex characteristics which are open for those who have not experienced excessively the skeptical incubus. And there are other common themes. It's often, I think, when we read, it, it, it often happens to the reader of 
philosophy, perhaps to the inattentive reader of philosophy, more than it does even to the inattentive reader of literature, to feel at certain moments as though the whole of philosophy was written by one person, sometimes on bad days getting it wrong and on other days getting it closer to the truth. Professor Cavell is a very distinctive philosopher, as well as being a very distinguished one. And what he has done most, I think, to ensure is that his, vo is that his philosophy always comes from a single voice, a voice into which he has injected a great deal of his own character and his own interests, his own curiosity, his own anxieties, and his own very deep insights into the nature of philosophy. To, the, the, Professor Cavell will give us two lectures. And the, the second lecture, I must get these things completely right, the second lecture tomorrow is entitled The Wittgensteinian Event. The first lecture, which he will deliver today, and which is really ominously called Philosophy the Day After Tomorrow, which is the day on which Professor Cavell regretfully leaves us, is subtitled The Moments in Nietzsche, Jane Austen, etc. I think many of Professor Cavell's writings, if accurately entitled, would always have etc. Thank you, Richard, for these beautiful words. I wish they were truer of my achievements than my ambitions. But uh, I'll uh, recover myself and speak under their aegis. I've lived, hello. I've lived longer in each of Berkeley and Cambridge as Richard Volheim was just, in effect, implying. Perhaps he didn't know this fact. Uh, then I have lived anywhere else in each of them, so that I could say with equal truth either that I'm at home in two places or that I'm always homesick. As for my voice on this particular occasion, uh, I think there's a pool being formed about how long it's going to last, but I'm always surprised by laryngitis, the two times I've had it that I recall. In that mood of ambiguity about where I'm at home, and anticipating these Howison lectures, which it's an honor to be invited to deliver, and I'm very grateful for it. I have variously over the past year in that mood, wherever I have been uh, traveling to and whatever I've been working on, known that I would want to use this occasion to give a sense of how various interests of mine early and late, general and specific, work together in what my intellectual life, sometimes predictably, sometimes not, has turned out to ask. How is it back there? Okay. Okay. So far. Today's lecture opens with a recognition of my indebtedness to Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. Tomorrow's attempts to specify in some detail what I recognize as peculiarities in that indebtedness, prompted by the celebration this past year of the 50th anniversary of Wittgenstein's death. One of my early characterizations of philosophical investigations was to say it was a work of instruction. And that will be an intermittent or subdominant theme of my remarks today. Initially, I meant the theme to emphasize the role of the child 
in that work of Wittgenstein's, a figure one doesn't expect to encounter in a major philosophical treatise, let alone in a principal role. Somewhat later, I turned the emphasis on instruction differently, speaking of philosophy as conceived in philosophical investigations as an education for grown-ups, I called it. Both emphases turn out to put themselves at odds with a desire to conceive of philosophy as a chapter of science, at odds in the following sense. If science is a stance towards things and the shifting set of methods of learning, for us, it represents the unsurpassable source of paradigms for learning something new about the world, then Wittgenstein's investigations in what it calls its methods takes the paradigms of philosophical instruction to contrast with those of science, emphasizing that what we learn from philosophy is precisely not something new. Quoting from the investigations, section 89, logical investigation, which includes what Wittgenstein calls grammatical investigation, takes its rise from an urge to understand the basis or essence of everything empirical. Not, however, as if to this end we had to hunt out new facts. It is rather of the essence of our investigations that we do not seek to learn anything new by it. We want to understand something that is already in plain view. For this is what we seem in some sense not to understand. But quite apart from the question of which philosophers would accept this as announcing philosophy's aspirations, what does this counter-sense of learning or understanding come to? Sometimes Wittgenstein says that philosophy's task is to assemble reminders. But so more or less, for example, do Plato and Heidegger and Levinas and J.L. Austin. I've taken the following scene or phantasm of the investigations, one I call it scene of instruction, to epitomize Wittgenstein's idea of learning and teaching from section 217. If I have exhausted a very famous remark of Wittgenstein's scene, if I have exhausted the justifications that is for following the rules of mathematics or of ordinary language as I do, I have reached bedrock and my spade is turned, then I am inclined to say, this is simply what I do. That was Wittgenstein. How to read this scene is at the core of a disagreement about how to read the investigations quite generally. Saul Kripke, in his influential book, fascinating book, disturbing book, Wittgenstein on Rules and Private Language, takes the teacher's or speaker's gesture of showing what he does or she to be meant as a show of power, a political gesture, I've called it, speaking for the community and demanding agreement, threatening exclusion. I've taken the gesture rather oppositely as acknowledging a necessary weakness I might call it acknowledging separateness in teaching or socialization, stressing that the arrival at an impasse between teacher and pupil also threatens and may enlighten the teacher. This difference of interpretation demands a long story. At the moment, I wish only to draw a moral from the fact that whichever way you take the scene of instruction, when the teacher recognizes that she or he has exhausted the justifications and concludes that further explanations are useless, he has various choices beyond simply quitting the scene or expressing exasperation or excluding. He may choose to wait, as it were, to lean upon his spade or to use the spade on nearby ground or to turn whatever he was simply doing before heading into this impasse Perhaps it was practicing handstands or playing the flute, or show why he was digging, say by replanting a young tree or by sinking a post, any of which may or may not elicit further interest and response from the pupil. The moral I draw focuses on the moment of impasse depicted as the teacher's falling silent, expressed as I take the scene, not only in the sense of finality in the words, this is simply what I do, but in the introduction of these words by the phrase, then I am inclined to say, which suggests that the words are in fact not said. Wittgenstein explicitly anticipates this moment of silence at the end of the opening section of the investigations and in saying, explanations come to an end somewhere, 
I've noted this as the text's opening moment of comedy, worthy of Montaigne, announcing at the opening of a work, before as it were anything has happened, that human work comes to an end. We can see that as the title of a Montaigne essay on everything's coming. Beyond this explicitness, I might say that implicitly, the form of the investigations manifests this fate of being silenced, of arriving at silence, all but incessantly, in which, in its 693 sections, philosophy comes to an end 693 times. A way to draw what I think of as the moral of recurrent silence is to say that at some point in teaching, the pupil must go on and want to go on alone. Another way is to say that the teacher is to know both when, even how, to fall silent and when and how to break his or her silence. This comes out in Wittgenstein's preoccupation with what is worth saying, or with what can be said. Familiar Wittgensteinian questions are, what is it to tell someone something? And only whom am I informing of this? Quite as though philosophy is to be responsive to its own human or inhuman drive to speak in emptiness, or perhaps to speak to unannounced or undiscerned others. To avoid this drive may be a reason to want philosophy to be a chapter of science, or a reason not to. When Wittgenstein accosts himself with the question, where does our investigation get its importance from, since it seems only to destroy everything interesting? Everything interesting, that is, all that is great and important, that was Wittgenstein. He replies, in effect, that if what he has done is destructive, what is destroyed cannot be of genuine interest. It was always a house of cards, Luftgebäude. Interest and importance have yet to be expressed and measured, and they need expressing and measuring in different terms, an ancient message of philosophy to reconsider what importance is. In a text obsessed with speech and silence, with possibilities and impossibilities of saying anything, importance or worth is measured in the point or stake in saying something whether to warn, inform, amuse, promise, question, count, insist, beseech, confess, and so on. And the point exceeds the saying, exceeds it in such a way that saying is not only vulnerable, as any human action is, to misfortune, not merely to the misfortune of misspeaking or of being misunderstood, but to that of being pointless, as if failing altogether to match a comprehensible reason for saying something, as in Wittgenstein's phantasm of a person putting his hand on top of his head and saying, I know how tall I am. Or as if words are fated to fall on deaf ears, as in Wittgenstein's warning, when your spade is turned, that it will not help to repeat the old examples and arguments. Finding speech pointless seems to me a characteristic mood of the investigations. Against the background of Wittgenstein's picturing speech talking as the distinctive life form of humankind, human existence, with its gift of language, presents itself in this text, this gift, this possession, as a melancholy, a disappointing business. The specific source of my sense of this disappointment with human existence has to do with the way I understand the pervasive role of what Wittgenstein calls our criteria for our judgments of the world. The sense that, for example, our noting of an almost suppressed wince, or of a hairbreadth's hesitation, or things not essentially different from these, or all we go on in our supposed certainties about each other's suffering, or joylessness, or distance. If morals of silence and teaching may be drawn to the effect that the pupil must want to go on alone, and in taking up language, and that what is said must be worth saying, have a point, then is there some question left as to whether the pupil has to find warning, informing, amusing, promising, thousands of points, themselves to be worth doing? Is it as part, if it is part of teaching, to undertake to validate these measures of interest in the world, in one another, in oneself, then it would be quite as if teaching must, as it were, undertake to show reason for speaking at all 
And then philosophy would cast itself as a struggle against melancholy, against being overtaken by pointlessness. One of the surprises to me in having arrived at so unlikely a location is that it brings to mind, and perhaps given odd access to, a remark of Walter Benjamin's that struck me and puzzled me when some years ago I came upon it in his book on the German tragic drama, namely that in speech, meaning, or the demand for meaning, is encountered as the reason for mournfulness. I've cast matters in this light. I'm not unaware that some will find the light somewhat garish. Having found the conjunction of the concepts of a new call for knowledge, or a call for a new idea of knowledge, together with a consequent necessity of silence, followed by the question of the point of speech, in my latest turn or return to a text of Nietzsche's, something that seems almost always to happen to me arbitrarily or unpredictably. This time, the turn was to human all too human, and especially to the 1886 preface to the original edition of 1878. This preface concludes its preparation for the book to follow, a book that seeks to discover, quoting, a knowledge surpassing all previous knowledge, a knowledge of the conditions of culture, unquote, by declaring, having noted that this book has found its readers abroad but has been heard most poorly in Germany, that his philosophy counsels him to be silent. Especially, he says, in certain cases, as the saying suggests, one remains a philosopher only by being silent. Meaning what? The point of speech is then taken up explicitly in the opening sentence of the preface to what came to be book two of Human All Too Human, where he says in that opening sentence, one should speak only when one must not be silent. Everything else, still Nietzsche, everything else is chatter, geschwätz. He also calls it literatur with quotation marks. Someone has doubtless before now conjoined this statement with the concluding statement of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. The difference seems to turn on the difference between the discovery of speaking in emptiness, which is chattering, and of speaking meaninglessly, which Wittgenstein calls metaphysically. The Wittgenstein of the Tractatus departs without considering that his philosophical discovery is bound, as human beings stand, to be ineffective. That human beings, first of all, perhaps philosophers, will go on saying, even insisting upon what cannot be said whereas the Wittgenstein of the investigations remains obsessed, as Nietzsche and, let's add, Heidegger and Kierkegaard are obsessed with this human vulnerability or folly or condition, or as Nietzsche archly also puts it, absence of breathing, talking, chattering, with no point. This description of Nietzsche's about his countrymen is lacking, let us say, tact. Maybe an allusion to, or I sometimes say a rewriting or a transfiguration of, as in uncountable other instances in Nietzsche's writing, a rewriting of a saying of Emerson's. In this case, Emerson saying, every word they say chagrins us. These writers seem to sense that they everywhere and nowhere share their native tongue, not an unknown motive for philosophizing. <clears throat> Nietzsche's affinity for Emerson, hence their endless differences, has occasionally in recent years been a principal theme of mine. Uh, here I note particularly the striking instance of that affinity marked or buried in, I suppose, a phrase in that new preface of Nietzsche's to human, all too human, namely when he speaks of a man of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. A phrase repeated from his Beyond Good and Evil, published the year before that preface, and one that will be repeated again the following year in a new preface to the gay science. A man of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. 
is Nietzsche's characterization of those free spirits. Uh, which the subtitle of human, all too human, identifies as the desired audience for his words, and which beyond good and evil characterizes as the philosopher, that man of tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. Hence that, quoting Nietzsche, extraordinary furtherer of man has always found himself and had to find himself in contradiction to his today. Emerson's word for being in contradiction to his today is his definition of thinking as being averse to the demand for conformity in every sentence, presumably. Nietzsche also explicitly in this matter invokes the image of turning as in Emerson's aversion when he challenges his reader to a reversal of one's habitual estimation and esteemed habits, his conformity in effect. And Wittgenstein, to reinscribe this member of the triangle, speaks of his philosophical investigations as being turned, namely around the fixed point of our real need, says the philosophical investigations. Of course, such coincidences of turning and aversion and uh, reversal uh, can be treated as accidents. Why would a philosopher wish to treat them so? which is to say, wish not to treat them, as I assume most will not. I adapt this characterization of the philosopher, day after tomorrow, for the title of today and the day after tomorrow, as the title of my remarks, to mark that the casual distinction in English between tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, translate the German Morgen und Übermorgen, and I claim, subject to correction, if not to anticipation, that the prefix über, so characteristic a site for Nietzschean inflection, is here in play as marking a distinction homologous with that between Mensch and Übermensch. To what end? Take Morgan in its sense of mourning, as well as of tomorrow. And we may discern an idea of a beyond, or an over, or a super morning, Uber Morgan. Why posit such a thing or an event? That it is explicitly posited by Nietzsche is confirmed in the closing sentence of Human All Too Human, where he links the figure of the philosopher with the figure of the wanderer, as one quoting who has come only in part to a freedom of reason, and hence cannot feel on earth otherwise than as a wanderer. And Nietzsche says of such figures, born out of the mysteries of the dawn, they ponder how the day can have such a pure, transparent, transfigured, and cheerful face. Between the hours of 10 and 12, still Nietzsche, they seek the philosophy of the forenoon. I propose this as a rewriting of Emerson's prophecy <clears throat> in the essay Circles an essay Nietzsche quotes implicitly at the opening and explicitly at the conclusion of his untimely meditation on Schopenhauer, that there is always, quoting, another dawn risen on mid-noon, unquote. It is true that Wordsworth and before him Milton had proposed new dawns at noon. But that is, is specifically Emerson's continuation of the thought that is on Nietzsche's mind. I find is confirmed by the Emersonian tones in which Nietzsche characterizes this further day, namely in the terms transparent and transfigured and cheerful, signature Emerson tones. Then the idea is that the further or over or beyond morning is the day realized, reconceived, by the further or over man. And contrarywise, that the over or superman is one who realizes such a day. <clears throat> Thoreau, Emerson's other great 19th century reader besides Nietzsche, leans on English as strongly as Nietzsche on German to produce his version of this thought in the three short sentences that conclude Walden. Only that day dawns to which we are awake 
there is more day to dawn, the sun is but a morning star. Focusing just on the homonymic sound morning, meaning both dawning and grieving, we're told that every illumination of the world that we have been party to has passed away and is something we must learn to rid ourselves, say to reevaluate. Nietzsche calls this overcoming himself, überwinden, which in Nietzsche's twist of the old prefix, uber would presumably mean to unwind, unscrew, unbind, straighten, release himself. Conquering oneself then becomes the progress of continuing to free oneself. One might say, pardon oneself. Can one wait for oneself? I passed for the present such echoes of Emerson still within the eight entries comprising the preface to Human All Too Human that are captured in its ideas of the lightning flash of thinking as pregnancy, of immoralism, one's highest moments, of sitting still, spinning patience, of unapproachable questions, of perspective, of our growing upward as a matter of climbing the rungs of a ladder, of being heard poorly, all of these are drenched in Emersonian texts by those texts. Going further into these conjunctures and differences would likely only serve to make more urgent the question, how can we know that taking up such matters in the way I have, not just briefly, but in the way I have, matters pertaining, for example, to what I've given the name Emersonian perfectionism, how do we know that all that is not merely geschwätz, literatur? I propose a small test for this in what remains by calling upon some texts that any sensible person will accept as genuinely literary, not merely in quotes, and see how distinction or, say, good breeding manifests itself there. I intend nothing more far-fetched than the novels of Jane Austen and George Eliot. The particular virtue don't you like that, etc. after Nietzsche and Jane Austen, etc. Well, this is one of them. The particular virtue for me, I might call it a secondary gain in this experiment, is the encouraging pertinence of these writers to a further region of the work I like to do, a pertinence I have not felt prepared uh, to broach in my work before now, and it's a region I would be particularly unhappy to leave unmentioned in giving my sense here of what I do. Namely, that Austin and Eliot are clear precursors of the preoccupations of the two genres of film that I have devoted books to, especially one of them. Genres I name the Hollywood comedy of remarriage and worked out in a book of mine called Pursuits of Happiness. That's what's, first of all, um, uh, what first of all finds precursors in these two great writers. Um, the melodramas that I've talked about are derived from them, so I leave them out of consideration. The realization that these films are understandable as studying the possibility of a perfectionist moral life in a democracy, and I take the comedies to comprise the best comedies of the golden age of Hollywood cinemas. What can that mean? <clears throat> it must have to do with laryngitis, whatever it means. Cinema after the advent of sound, I say, they're the best. I like to make claims like that. Uh, it goes with a certain commitment to wait around for somebody to deny them. That idea is a pivotal moment in my intellectual path. I pause to emphasize its importance to me in connection with the issue of perfectionism. Just a few minutes for this. Moral perfectionism, as I take it up, I may be said to have been located with Socrates' explanation to the young Euthyphro that questions that cause hatred and anger, specifically unlike questions of science or measurements, are disagreements over the question of the just and the unjust, or the right and the wrong, we might say, of the good and the bad, and of the honorable and the dishonorable. It is still the case, I believe, that the dominant professional pedagogy in moral philosophy proceeds by contrasting the relations of questions of right and wrong, 
most famously presented in Kant, with questions of the good and the bad, as in utilitarianism. Issues here tend to emphasize matters of moral choice, of what action is to be done, and the reasons for doing it. The emphases in Socrates' third pair, the honorable and the dishonorable, suggest to my mind more strongly, of course the others will also pertain it, the evaluation of a way of life. It is this emphasis that I'm calling perfectionism, epitomized in the modern period in Emerson's formulation of our moral aspiration to an unattained but attainable self. Other formulations are the romantics more famous, become the one you are, taken up as a banality, but one to be given new life in Heidegger's being and time. Perhaps the banality is related to Shakespeare's having given the line about being true to yourself to Polonius, adapted in Emerson's have the courage to be the one you are, and in young Nietzsche's transcription of conscience as saying in that uh, Schopenhauer text of his, be yourself. All you are now doing, thinking, desiring, is not you, yourself. To remember something of this kind echoed in the US Army's recruitment advertisement of a year or so ago, be all that you can be, is to bear in mind that perfectionism has debased forms, something that is as apparently essential to it as that philosophy has its debased forms its intellectual competitors, insisted upon since its inception in Plato. It matters to me that Ibsen became the most significant playwright in the centuries after Shakespeare and Racine by taking as his subject what can be seen as a sequence of debasements of the search for a perfectionist existence. I add that in what I call Emersonian perfectionism, there is no idea of a final or perfected state that each is to attain or to pursue, as Emerson has many ways of saying, around every circle, another may be drawn. The idea is always of liberation from a present state to a further or next state. Plato's and Aristotle's perfectionisms, however different from each other, are for the privileged, no secret, my claim is that this concession is combated in, among others, Emerson and in Nietzsche, as it is in the films that I allude to. It is over disagreement in the interpretation of Nietzsche on this point that I take issue with John Rawls' portrait of moral perfectionism in the epical A Theory of Justice. As manifested in the films that I adduce, perfectionism's attention is not focused on headline moral issues such as abortion, capital punishment, euthanasia, poverty, civil disobedience, whistleblowing. There are plenty of films about those topics. And hence, perfectionism may not seem to some to be a moral theory at all. Indeed, it's the apparent, it's the apparent unconcern of the couples of remarriage comedy with such matters, as if they are too intelligent or fastidious ever to become ensnared in mundane moral problems being immune to feelings of envy or motives of aggression that suggests that their signature moral failing is that of snobbery. But how else is one to think of the conversations of Catherine Hepburn with Cary Grant, of Hepburn with Spencer Tracy, Adam's rib, of Clark Gable with Claudette Colbert, happened one night, Barbara Sandwick with Henry Fonda, Adam's rib, um, the Lady Eve, uh, touching upon, as these conversations do, inattentiveness, contemptuousness, brutality, coldness, cowardice, vanity, thoughtlessness, unimaginativeness, heartlessness, deviousness, vengefulness. How is one to think of such encounters other than as one soul's examination of another and of itself, which I suppose to represent moral encounter? A guiding idea both of the comedies where marriage is accepted or re-accepted and of the related melodramas where marriage is in fact rejected is that nothing legitimizes or ratifies marriage, not state or church or sex or gender or children, apart from the willingness for reaffirmation, which is to say remarriage, the films open or climax with a threat of divorce. 
and what makes marriage worth reaffirming is a diurnal devotedness which involves friendship, play, surprise, and mutual education, all manifested in the pair's mode of conversing with one another, which expresses an intimacy of understanding, often incomprehensible to the rest of the depicted world, but in which consists the truth of the marriage. The education of the pair by each other is not to provide an increase of learning, but a transformation of existence. Those who cannot inspire one another to such an education do not have the interest for one another that these films call marriage. It is part of the presentation. Sorry. What invites novels, such as Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Persuasion, Mansfield's Park, and Emma, together with George Eliot's Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda to this discussion is in contradiction to much of philosophy, their devotion to the life of the everyday, while at the same time they share in the texture and turn of every scene their knowledge of, their craving for, a life lived from what Emerson and Nietzsche calls the further self, glimpsed from the perspective of life's higher moments, so-called more difficult moments, perhaps, perfectionist moments. <clears throat> the lives depicted in these novels as in the films, can seem too confined, especially, uh, I'm thinking of Austin here, too confined or aloof to provide moral inspiration or instruction for a rough world. The experience of the novels is for many, for me, otherwise. The connection of these novels with the thinking of Nietzsche is in any case something of a shock at least to me, and the illumination of the connection works in both directions. In saying that these novels are invited by the way I introduced Nietzsche, I had in mind the unarticulated ground on which Nietzsche, and for that matter Emerson, issues his call for the future, for the new day, namely his sickness, seasickness, Nietzsche calls it, in the preface to Human All Too Human, Sickness in response to the way humankind lives today. Nietzsche regards himself, while still participating in that way, as having broken with it. He is at sea, and consequently as in a state of convalescence, he calls it, with respect to it. Not ready for it, not in possession of a context for a new way, and he knows uh, it is a way in the state of this knowledge in which he writes, that almost all others remain buried in adjustment, in an unrelieved routine or fixation of ordinariness, the thing Emerson calls conformity, and that Nietzsche in the untimely meditations calls philistinism, and that Mill in On Liberty Pictures as mutual intimidation, frightened of one another. That Wittgenstein and Austin, in effect, criticize that ordinary, or its basis in our everyday modes of exchange, precisely by an appeal to our ordinary words, should mean that our lives inherently possess the power to criticize themselves. But since most of us, most of the time, do not, according to such writers, consult our words in criticism of our lives, the implication is that we live in oblivion of what we say and do at every moment, what Nietzsche calls of the conditions of our culture. It is from within some such place in this state of conformity, even out of a certain respect for it, for its necessity or inescapability, that Jane Austen and George Eliot, as I'm conceiving of them now, write. As if out of the obligation to depict for their readers the truth of their condition, hence to awaken and confirm their knowledge of the brutalities of that condition, and to exemplify instances in which the soul can learn not to be crushed, 
by the force of compromise with justice, the compromise with justice that modern society exacts. To manage to maintain faith with one's desire for an enlightened world, a rational world, as Jane Austen likes to say, in the face of one's compromises with it, is a recognizable aim, uh, as strong in its, uh, a recognizable aim of philosophy, uh, as strong in its way in Nietzsche as in Rawls' theory of justice. Does this coincidence of aim suggest a philosophical dimension to the novels that I propose to adduce? In today's philosophical climate, in which there are more possibilities for philosophy than in the years I was beginning to find my way, I hear it said that in thinking about moral issues, novels illuminate imaginatively what philosophy attempts, if not vainly, then limitedly, uh, to articulate conceptually. I don't want to deny that exactly, but here I emphasize that in confronting, except for the vainly, but here I emphasize that in confronting everyday life with itself, the novels I've cited, novels of domesticity or inhabitation, let's call them, but we might also call them etymologically novels of economy, equally illustrate anti-philosophy, taking a contrary course to philosophy's chronic flight from the ordinary, whose philosophical picture of ordinary human habitation, philosophy's early picture, is Plato's cave. But how could anything, say a novel, or say the study of a place in nature, as in Thoreau's Walden, which his writer also introduces explicitly as a work of economy, propose a counter to philosophy without itself approaching, hence becoming in part philosophy. In compressing matters so severely, hoping to give a sense of the context for the following thoughts, I know I run the risk of coming to seem merely strange. <clears throat> I call the connection of Nietzsche with the novels of economy somewhat shocking, sharing, I should guess, a sense of disproportion in juxtaposing Nietzsche's garish emotionality, uh, to take first the plainer case with Jane Austen's narrator's celebrated surface of lethal calm. Surely her portrait of society is closer to the imagination of the social in, say, Jane's namesake, John Austen, with his stress upon propriety and promise-keeping than to anything in Nietzsche. I would hardly deny this, but the spiritual distress characteristically registered in Nietzsche's texts is not inaccurate to something to be felt in Jane Austen's prose. You might say that her prose seeks to minimize while maintaining the expression of distress in everyday existence no less drastically than Nietzsche's seeks to maximize it. A trick of the prose, in each case, is to make an issue of the degrees of its seriousness, as if, like philosophy, to forego any claim to authority outside itself. When I read on the opening page of Austin's Emma that its heroine, quoting, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, she said to be handsome, clever, rich, young, and that, quoting again, it was on the wedding day of her beloved friend, namely her governess of 16 years, that Emma first sat in mournful thought of any continuance. I find that I do not know whether this meditation signifies that she is vexed not to have her friend to continue their happy mode of existence, or whether it suggests that she is so grief-stricken that she cannot imagine wanting her existence to continue, or whether, as seems to me the case, that Emma herself cannot tell the difference between these states. Distress, vexation, sorrow, grief are, in addition to mourning, concepts narratively in play on this first page of Emma, and it will take what we may call an education to articulate their differences. The sentence following maintains the difficult mood. The wedding over and the bride people gone, 
her, that is Emma's father and herself, were left to dine together with no prospect of a third to cheer the long evening. This suggests, I suppose, that she has intact the thought of the next morning to look forward to. But is there not also a suggestion that she's left to count how many cheerless evenings may be in store, and that there is no knowing how the day will be different from the night. The thought is continued on the next page. It runs, many a long October and November evening must be struggled through, where Emma is said now to be in great danger of suffering from intellectual solitude. How great is this danger? I mean, not how likely is it, it is likely. But what order of danger is it? <clears throat> and is this really to be placed in the same world with the all but inexpressible loneliness Nietzsche divines in that preface to Human All Too Human, where he asks, who today knows what loneliness is? Yet would we really understand Nietzsche's outcries, to the extent we do, if these instances in Austin's and in Nietzsche's texts were just incommensurable? The sentence of Austin's following the one noting Emma's isolation defines it further. She dearly loved her father, but he was no companion for her. He could not meet her in conversation, rational or playful. Now, the very capacity for rational and playful conversation proves to have its own form of isolation, or say alienation, and to produce its own aspiration for encounter and, let us say, transcendence. And to have this capacity to go, sorry, to have that capacity go unmet, bespeaks a danger of loneliness not unsuggestive of madness. The father who cannot meet her conversation, like the father generally in Jane Austen's world, are at the verge of non-existence. They lack a taste or energy for the world. They are beings for whom everything needs to be done. But what kind of world is it in which, though recognized to be patriarchal, there are no patriarchs? And in these so-called novels of, of marriage, what is the wager of marriage? where a refusal to marry is apt to mean economic and social destitution for the woman, and the acceptance of a bad marriage will mean the suffocation of the expression of rationality and playfulness, comedic touchstones of the perfectionist aspiration. I should confess that I came somewhat late to an unconstrained fascination with Jane Austen, compared with many of my acquaintances who read her young, and who therefore readier than I to identify with the elation of her novel's conclusions and with the wit and luck necessary to them, however much I caught their thrill, rather than to dwell on the stupidity, the silliness, the empty-headedness, the quality of being worn out. All of those are characteristic predicates of Jane Austen's, of so many of her supporting players, who reveal the character of the social condition which the main characters of inner aspiration must overcome in themselves. By the time of Mansfield Park in 1815, there is mostly no one for the reader to identify with, and we are free unprotectedly to imagine, as recent critics have, the fact of the slave trade on which the world of that house, as we are repeatedly, if delicately reminded by Austin, is founded, and recognize the practice is, by the time of the writing of the novel, known to be fatally under legislative attack. This is the most lurid of the compromises with an imperfect, to say the least, society shown in Austen's novels. It seems to me to go with the fact that among Austen's admirable women, flawed as each may be, Fanny Price of Mansfield Park is notable, among other matters, for her unexplained physical weakness which I confess to wishing to consider as a signal of Nietzschean convalescence, marking one imperfectly fit for the world as it is, because in preparation for a further constitution. The economy of horror in visibly sustaining the main house of Mansfield Park 
makes it harder for us to fail to imagine the unspoken conditions of economy and the other members of the genre that Austen made her own. In a different world from the one she depicts in Emma, or rather the same world looked at from a different perspective, in a different disposition or economy, namely the world she portrays in Pride and Prejudice, I cite the critical moment at which self-possessed Elizabeth receives a letter from fascinating and perplexing Mr. Darcy that overthrows her supposed knowledge of his untrustworthiness and cruelty. I see the moment rather differently from the way Austen seems to describe it, and I believe the way her audience seems to accept it. Elizabeth says to herself there that she feels, among other things, that she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd, and concludes with the recognition, till this moment, I never knew myself. That is, she reinterprets her character and attributes her folly, let's say, to vanity and prepossession. But prepared for other levels of anxiety and compromise, we may wish to recognize that what she feels is the initial onset of self-knowledge is the reality for the first time of being known, of being one to whom such a letter could be written, being acknowledged in her difference, as if until then her existence had been denied, had suffered the polite skepticism, the little deaths of everyday life. Darcy's power to reveal anxiety is present from his early exchanges with Elizabeth, having been treated to her revelation of herself as an amused student of character. Darcy observes, quoting, the country can in general supply but few subjects for such a study. In a country neighborhood, you move in very confined and unvarying society, unquote. Elizabeth replies, but people themselves alter so much that there is something new to be observed in them forever. Darcy may merely have meant, out of his pride and prejudice, that fashionable society is the more amusing environment. He may further mean to convey a sense that her chances for amusement and for studies are, in her situation, confined nearly to the point of paralysis. She deflects both gestures by implying that her powers of observation are more than he imagines, not awaiting, but providing her amusement. Now, to see something new forever in an unvarying society, to see from the heightened perspective of a beyond morning, is an accurate description of what a writer such as Jane Austen has learned to provide for the world. But this implication of a certain genius reflected as Elizabeth at the same time serves more threateningly to seal her isolation or loneliness, to show her consciousness to be unshareable. Elizabeth's own recognition of this danger, no longer attributable, I would like to suppose, to any particular social configuration, seems to me to leap out in her impatient concluding reply to her beloved sister Jane's persistent inability to recognize the truth of Jane's feelings for a young man who has wounded her. As Elizabeth interprets these feelings for her, Elizabeth concludes after her long tirade, short tirade, we all love to instruct, though we can teach only what is not worth knowing. That was Elizabeth. I assume this is the source of Oscar Wilde's first maxim for the instruction of the overeducated. Education is an admirable thing, but it's well to remember from time to time that nothing that is worth knowing can be taught. Even if both writers took this thought from some common prior source, it would still suggest that a certain Nietzschean pressure is not foreign to Jane Austen's own forces in her novels of the everyday, of the sort Nietzsche describes almost at the close of Human All Too Human. Quoting that, some individuals know how to treat their experiences, their insignificant everyday experiences, that's Nietzsche, so that these become a plot of ground that bears fruit three times a year, while others, now many of them, always stay lightly on the surface like cork, Instead of creating the work out of nothing, they create nothing out of the world. I note that Nietzsche's German here more literally says that these latter create a nothing out of the world, which seems a fair characterization of nihilism, which I find not too strong an image for what Jane Austen sometimes perceives as the pervasive and silent challenger of her intelligence. 
This should be easier to believe in the case of the last great novels of the deeply learned George Eliot, Middlemarch, and Daniel Deronda, which I have left essentially no time to take up now. I shall simply point to an entrance and a path that I find promising to begin with. <clears throat> Within my aspiration for philosophy, my question is this. If the perfectionist path exacts the cost of a great separation, is it one that women of George Eliot's, let alone of Jane Austen's time, could have afforded? If one dimension of the separation is from society and its compulsion toward marriage, or else toward a few alternative posts of respectability, separation suggests sinking beneath society in massively more cases than it does rising above society. So haven't these historical everydays become impertinent to our modern or postmodern achievements? A proposed way of answering derives from Eliot's Middle March, written in the early 1870s, the same decade as Human, All Too Human. Eliot famously opens and closes Middle March with an invocation of Saint Teresa, who several centuries earlier had demanded and found for her passionate ideal nature expression in an epic life, the reform of a religious order, a history that Eliot contrasts with a new time in which, quoting her, many Teresas have been born who found for themselves no epic life, perhaps only a life of mistakes, the offspring of a certain spiritual grandeur, ill-matched with the meanness of opportunity, unquote. That's the opening page. The closing page, adducing in addition Antigone, announces that the medium in which their ardent deeds took shape is forever gone. Nietzsche will observe, human all too human, the best in us has perhaps been inherited from the feelings of former times, feelings which today can hardly be appreciated on direct paths. The sun is already set, but our skies Sorry, our life's sky glows and shines with it still, although we no longer see it. George Eliot's answer then to the closing or setting of the past of greatness is to become the novelist of the heroism of everyday life, the life in which, quote, we insignificant people with our daily words and acts are preparing the lives of many Dorotheas, the heroine of Middlemarch, whose unhistoric hidden acts, Eliot says, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on. But who, other than a great novelist, is entitled to such an answer? I assume that we all have our parts to play. I assume Eliot is describing an aspect of her work in creating and interpreting myths in the following exchange from Daniel Deronda, where the strange creature, Mira, reports to Deronda that a friend had told, quoting, a wonderful story of Buddha giving himself to the famished tigress to save her and her little ones from starving. And this friend said, this is still Mira reporting to Deronda, that you were like Buddha. That is what we all imagine of you. Deronda objects to this. Pray don't imagine that. Even if it were true that I thought so much of others, it would not follow that I had no wants for myself. When Buddha, still Daniel Deronda now, let the tigress eat him, he might have been very hungry himself, unquote. A young girl listening to this exchange asks, but was it beautiful for Buddha to let the tiger eat him? It would be a bad pattern. A child responds, the world would get full of fat tigers. <laughs> Eliot continues, Deronda laughed, but defended the myth. It is like a passionate word, he said. The exaggeration is a flash of fervor. It's an extreme image of what is happening every day, the transmutation of self, unquote. As if, as Nietzsche also says, the great separation is recapitulated or resisted in each life 
who knows how often. George Eliot, as it were, after Emerson, envisions the democratization of perfectionism, asks for each the right to take a step toward an unattained possibility of the self, toward a world closer to the heart's desire. If I ask myself whether Nietzsche's claim of separation is meant primarily as an epistemological or metaphysical or religious or aesthetic or psychic or political or moral task, I find I'm glad to reply, glad only to reply, that it is precisely all of these all the time. But that means to me that every word we utter or withhold is an act treading at least these registers. No one is entitled in advance to them. They are ours for the taking. No wonder philosophy chronically lives in fear of the ordinary word. Whether the fear is healthy or unhealthy remains perhaps undecided. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.